Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When the first Gulf War ended in March of 1991, George H.W. Bush was as popular as any American president had ever been. Hailed around the world for skillfully assembling the international coalition which drove Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, domestic polls put Bush's favorability rating near 90%. Think about that. Most presidents are lucky if they get to 90% in their own party. Can you think of anything or anyone that gets that type of support these days? I can't. But that's just how popular Bush was in the spring of 1991. At a joint session of Congress, the 41st president received a loud standing ovation from both, yes, both sides of the room. Members of the Congress, I now have the high privilege and distinct honor of presenting to you the president of the United States. Pundits predicted Bush was a shoo-in for re-election. But America's lethargic economy went from bad to worse. By the end of 1991, the deficits of Reagan's second term were coming due, real wages for workers were stagnant, and debt exploded. All the while, President Bush's foreign policy successes were rapidly fading into the rearview mirror for voters. For a small number of Republicans, the sitting president was not an international statesman, rather an out-of-touch elitist who broke the central promise of his 1988 campaign. The Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no, and they'll push and I'll say no, and they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips. For these Republicans, Bush's support for the 1990 Budget Enforcement Act that raised taxes to shore up the federal budget was an unforgivable sin. Ordinarily, incumbent presidents rarely face any serious or organized challenge in primaries. No one in their right mind challenges a president who just had a 90% approval rating. It was very unexpected at the time that anyone would challenge Bush within the party. However, former White House aide and TV pundit Pat Buchanan sensed there was a simmering anger among conservatives. Buchanan's campaign of searing rhetoric economic nationalism and strident morality were the first visible volleys in what became a three-decade-long Republican civil war that only just concluded with Donald Trump's victory, which, in a way, was Pat Buchanan's ultimate triumph. Over the course of a few short weeks, during his New Hampshire primary campaign run, Pat Buchanan, riding a wave of populism and anti-elitism, exposed a then-unknown fault line in the Republican Party, and so bloodied George Bush that the once popular incumbent president never recovered. Pat Buchanan in 1992 was really running against the establishment Republican Party, running as a protectionist against free trade, running on cultural issues, and running against sort of the white-shoe Republican country club Republicans that George Bush represented. History may be written by the winners, 
spot in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. God bless you, and God bless America. These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot but still changed how we see America. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born, but through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment, an age of jobs, and peace and justice. These are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. Today, Pat Buchanan, the original populist. Long before Rush Limbaugh and Fox News dominated conservative media, there was Pat Buchanan. With a nationally syndicated column, a show on CNN, and a weekly seat as a panelist on the combative McLaughlin Group political program, Buchanan was America's most outspoken and visible conservative. His credentials as a conservative firebrand were impeccable. He served three Republican presidents, Richard Nixon as a speechwriter, Gerald Ford as an advisor, and Ronald Reagan as director of communications during the Gippers' second term. Andrea Mitchell, who covered the Reagan White House for NBC News, remembers Buchanan as a rock-rib conservative. We used to talk about Buchanan, even when he was on the Reagan White House staff, as being willing to go off the cliff with all flags flying, purely ideological, not willing to compromise. Born in 1938 into a large, middle-class Irish Catholic family in Washington, D.C., Buchanan was shaped by the rigid Cold War morality of the 1950s that he learned at home and at his Jesuit-run Catholic high school, Gonzaga. Even though he'd had a from the upper-middle-class childhood and went to a fancy Jesuit school, there was a lot of resentment and anger. Obsessed with the nostalgia of a time when America was on the ascent, his heroes as a child were strongmen and anti-communist crusaders like General Douglas MacArthur and Senator Joe McCarthy. Buchanan stayed close to home for college, attending Georgetown University. He was the kind of kid that was constantly getting in fights and, uh, you know, getting put on the dean's list. That is Stephen Stark, a journalist and author who has written extensively about Buchanan. Buchanan's studies were, let's just say, interrupted during his senior year when he was expelled from Georgetown after a traffic altercation. He got a speeding ticket, it turned violent, and the brawl sent two D.C. patrolmen to the hospital. After a one-year suspension, Buchanan would graduate from Georgetown and then earn a master's from Columbia University before becoming an opinion writer for the St. Louis Globe Democrat. He would go on to work for Richard Nixon, who Buchanan described as a father-like figure during Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign. He was attached to Nixon because he saw Nixon as sort of standing up to traditional liberal values in the country. And I think that's kind of the way he portrayed himself throughout his career. It was while working for Nixon that Buchanan helped popularize the phrase, 
the silent majority, the makeup and contours of this group mean a little something different to everyone, depending on the time. But basically, the silent majority are America's white, working-class voters. You know, the factory workers, the farmers, the churchgoers. They feel threatened, menaced, really, by the march of progress and social change. They feel like outsiders. But they also view themselves as the real Americans. They're steeped in cultural resentment. They hate the so-called establishment, the media, and anyone whose political morality is different than theirs. These were Buchanan's people, even if his own personal biography and power as a professional political operative and journalist provided him with the very type of access and privilege the silent majority abhors. Even though he might be criticizing the political establishment, you know, the Beltway gang, he was kind of part of it to a large degree. In December of 1991, Pat Buchanan launched this campaign against President George H.W. Bush with a frontal assault on the Republican establishment by echoing the sentiment of the silent majority, declaring it was time to end the reign of King George. Why am I running? Because we Republicans can no longer say it is all the liberals' fault. It was not some liberal Democrat who declared, read my lips, no new taxes, and then broke his word to cut a seedy backroom deal with the big spenders on Capitol Hill. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, millennials, entitled brats, Gen Z, ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face to face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available now. George Herbert Walker Bush was the personification of what was the Republican establishment. Born the son of a wealthy New England senator, Bush served as a congressman, United Nations ambassador, chair of the Republican National Committee, director of the CIA, and vice president before being elected president in 1988. With international partners, President Bush oversaw the dismantling of Cold War institutions and ushered in a wide range of global economic treaties designed to foster trade and prosperity. He was also as longtime political reporter Carl Cameron notes, everything Pat Buchanan was not. Bush was a moderate compared to Pat Buchanan. Despite their different upbringings, both men were loyal Reagan supporters. They just saw Reagan's legacy differently. For Buchanan, according to Richard Stradling, who covered the New Hampshire primary in 1992, Reagan was the anti-communist hero who took on and destroyed the Soviet Union, cut domestic taxes, and dismantled the American welfare state. 
he saw Ronald Reagan as sort of that standard bearer. Republicans at that time, and Bush certainly embodied that, they were kind of the Chamber of Commerce, Main Street, small business party. That had been their traditional role for a long time. Bush was a conservative, but also an institutionalist by nature. What do I mean? Domestically, he valued bipartisanship and internationally, alliances, particularly the ones that Reagan built with Britain's Margaret Thatcher and Canada's Brian Mulroney. For Bush, these relationships served as the stabilizing mechanism during the post-Cold War realignment and the fight against Saddam Hussein. Bush also saw these alliances as part of a new U.S.-led world order and key to economic power. He took the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement and expanded it to include Mexico and what we all now know as NAFTA. For Buchanan, Bush was a globalist who put the international community ahead of America and allowed foreign cultures to undermine America's own way of life. Here is Bay Buchanan, Pat Buchanan's sister and campaign manager, describing Bush. Bottom line is he was a terrific human being, a fine, fine person, a terrific resume, enormously qualified, but he didn't have our beliefs. He didn't share those things which were core to the conservative movement. Even before Buchanan announced his candidacy, he made no secret of his objections to Bush's tax and economic policies. Once a free trader, he became an ardent protectionist. Buchanan railed against his party's free trade obsession. When the Bush administration signaled it would counter Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, Buchanan condemned America's intervention into the Middle East on television, blamed Israel for dragging the U.S. into the war, and quipped that Congress was, quote, Israeli-occupied territory. Then, in October of 1991, Bush signed the Civil Rights Act, which was designed to provide professional opportunities to women and minorities. Conservatives went ballistic, calling it a quota bill. He basically gave in on affirmative action, which was completely unnecessary at that stage. Buchanan wrote that in an effort to achieve, quote, fairness, neo-socialists have affected an immense transfer of wealth from producers to a parasitic government. Elected by small businesses and middle America, this administration, Buchanan added, has betrayed both. This insult to conservatism was the final blow. Buchanan had made up his mind, telling his sister, it's a go. He said, you know, if we allow someone to call themselves a conservative who is not, then we lose the meaning of our movement. The time has come to seize back our taxes, our jobs, our values. And this is the man who will lead us, Mr. Pat Buchanan. On December 10th, 1991, just 10 weeks before the New Hampshire primary, Pat Buchanan officially launched his insurgent campaign against President George Bush. From the start, he was dismissed. He wasn't a fringe candidate or even a long shot. He was just dismissed as having no chance. There were multiple reasons, good reasons, Buchanan's team could have chosen to fight in New Hampshire rather than the traditional first contest in Iowa. The economy in the Granite State was severely depressed. Its textile industry had been hit hard by trade. 
And with New Hampshire's state slogan of live free or die, Buchanan's anti-tax position was likely to resonate there. But they chose New Hampshire for one very simple reason, says Bay Buchanan. I'd say the real reason is because New Hampshire was doable. It's a small state. You can go up there and you, and you can meet people day in, day out, day in, day out. It wasn't just trade, although trade played beautifully. Uh, but the taxes, the president had betrayed his promise on taxes. We knew that New Hampshire was very sensitive to the issue of taxes. So it all fit. You know, it was the alignment of the stars. New Hampshire was the place to go. And we didn't have money to go anywhere else. With limited budget and almost no campaign infrastructure to speak of, Bay quickly set out to build a campaign team. However, hiring staff to run against a sitting president for a long-shot presidential run is nearly impossible. Joining the team was career suicide. Who in their right mind would join? If you are working for a candidate who is challenging an incumbent who sits in the White House, especially in a primary, they will go out of their way to blackball you if you sign up for the wrong team. They will stop just short of threatening you with death. That's Jay Townsend. At the time, a young and relatively unknown political operative who ignored the threats to join Pat Buchanan's campaign. I was attracted to Pat at the time because of his message. He is a globalist and we are nationalists. He believes in some pox universalis. We believe in the old republic. He would put America's wealth and power at the service of some vague new world order. We will put America first. Buchanan was not the only one concerned about America's direction. Pat Buchanan got great press from the union leader in New Hampshire, which was the only statewide newspaper and hugely, hugely influential. For more than a century, the union leader had been one of the country's leading conservative newspapers. Its then-publisher, Naki Loeb, was a kingmaker in Republican politics, and she too felt betrayed by President Bush. We had a friend up there in Naki Loeb. We knew that if we got that endorsement, it would be huge. Pat Buchanan made it his business in a very, very outward, obvious way that he wanted to be friends with the publisher and editor of the Manchester Union Leader newspaper in New Hampshire. The first person Bay Buchanan called after her brother decided to run was Loeb. On the phone, the publisher was coy about supporting Buchanan. Soon, though, it was clear where the union leader stood. Within the next couple of days, she had Go Pat Go as you know, three-inch headline across the, the paper up there, union leader. Buchanan's America First message now had a megaphone amplifying it. Initially, Bush just ignored Buchanan. They didn't want to give Pat any more credibility than they already had. And they thought by laying low and not engaging Pat that he would get a small percentage of the vote and nobody would notice he was there. He could have ignored us and was smart to ignore us, where his mistake was he ignored our message. From the start, New Hampshire was flooded with radio and television ads attacking the president, remembers former CNN White House correspondent Charles Bierbauer. I think Pat Buchanan was much more willing to get down and wrestle in the mud than was George Herbert Walker Bush. His politics and his political practices were definitely bare knuckle. The message of an ineffective, out-of-touch elite 
was soon echoing across the state. Can we afford four more years of broken promises? Read my lips. Send a message. Read our lips. Vote Pat Buchanan for president. We took his statement at the convention, uh, read my lips, no new taxes. We actually had it so it it quivered a bit more than – and, and so we elongated that statement. And we played it so often and for so many weeks that they said kids in, in preschool were saying, read my lips, no peas. Bush tried to reconnect with New Hampshire where he had won the Republican primary just four years earlier by emphasizing his long relationship with the Granite State. This state has gone through hell. It's gone through an extraordinarily difficult time. I am determined to turn this state around. He came up and he had these three by five cards or something similar. And he read from them and he said, I care. (laughs) We laughed so hard, he had to read it. While Bush surrogates, Blame the Democratic-controlled Congress for the national recession. Pat doesn't understand that the problem with the economy is that Congress failed to pass growth packages proposed by the president. It all just fed Buchanan's central theme. The president was missing in action. Last three years, they had more sightings of Elvis up here than they did of Mr. Bush. Buchanan had given conservatives ample reason to second-guess their previous support for Bush, which was pretty much the strategy. You have to break your voter from the person they used to be with. That's step one for a a, a challenger to win, an underdog. You have to make them question whether this guy deserves their continued support, and then that puts them in undecided. With many voters now questioning their support for the president, Buchanan ramped up his rhetoric, appealing to their economic concerns. These people were losing jobs. Factories were closed. Pat would just go from one small business to the next and then work over to some closed factory. And then he would be meeting with guys coming in for the the, pick up their Christmas turkeys and shaking their hands. And their message to him was to save our jobs. To save their jobs, Buchanan promised a new nationalism that would protect the American worker by putting America first. Is it fair that Japan exports two million cars to us Takes in 16,000. Now, there is something you need to understand about the late 80s and early 90s. Many believed America was selling its future to Japan. They seemed to be buying up the entire country. Sony bought Columbia Pictures, Mitsubishi, the Rockefeller Plaza in New York. Pebble Beach Golf Course was purchased by the Japanese businessman Minoru Itsutani. The theme was so pervasive. Hollywood got in on the action with a string of movies depicting the growing Japanese threat. We must be a team. In Japan, our goal is a zero percent defense. How'd you slip by? Ron Howard's comedy, Gong Ho, depicted life at a Detroit car plant after the Japanese took over. Then there was Bruce Willis's Die Hard, Michael Crichton's Rising Sun, and Robocop 3. They all fed and reflected America's unease with Japan and Asia, immigrants, and multiculturalism. Andrea Mitchell. Jobs were being outsourced, particularly to Asia, to the emerging trades in Asia, and also somewhat in Latin America and Mexico. Mexico wasn't yet taking a significant number of jobs from America, but it was starting to. Buchanan feared, correctly as it turns out, that the NAFTA trade bill would supercharge the relocation of American industry. George Bush has made the economic environment in his own country 
horrendously unattractive while he's made Mexico an enterprise zone. And at a time when the U.S. was in a deep recession, the Bush administration was accused of funding the transfer of jobs to Mexico. Is it fair? I just read up in New Hampshire that the Export-Import Bank of our own country is financing a paper mill for American businesses in Mexico. When I just came back from the James River paper mill in Groveton, New Hampshire, where those guys came up to me and said, do one thing, Mr. Buchanan, save our jobs. Pat was one of the first to say, this is coming. This is going to cause a major problem. This is going to upend the economy in the United States for a lot of people. Buchanan attacked trade deals, railed against multiculturalism, and vowed to keep immigrants out of the country to make sure they didn't take American jobs. 25 years before Donald Trump, Buchanan even called for a barrier between the U.S. and Mexico. We became extremely outspoken on the wall. And the response was amazing, just amazing. But it was very xenophobic and isolationist at its heart. Now, a lot of Buchanan's economic rhetoric and ideas are still popular. Donald Trump rode many of the same themes to the White House. Others like Ron Paul, Howard Dean, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren have all made many of the same critiques of America's trade policies. Like Trump, Buchanan's views came across as dark and divisive, in large part because his own words came back to haunt him. Seen through the filter of old newspaper columns and books, Buchanan's political stances appeared to be based on something more than just the economic situation of 1992. To some, his policies were blatant bigotry. Pat Buchanan's books were very controversial. He had an affinity for Hitler and Second World War strategy. And he wrote a great deal about culture, and he ventured into a variety of areas that made him kind of unpopular at times. He had, I think, famously referred to AIDS as uh, nature's retribution of gays. He spent a lot of time in that campaign having to answer for some of the things he'd written over the years. Conservatives ate up the scorching rhetoric, though, while his ability to look right into the camera and smile kept him on TV. He has a very genial persona. I mean, it's very hard, even while he's attacking people. He's kind of laughing. He's got a smile. Many in the media who knew and liked Buchanan personally sort of shrugged their shoulders at the things he said. It was Pat being Pat. Similar to the refrain you hear today, it's just Trump being Trump. Even when he said something outrageous, there was always media attention. If you are a... uh, popular figure on television. People cut you a lot of slack because they feel they know you. You're kind of a friend. You've been in their living room day after day for years. And I think as a harbinger of the TV celebrity as candidate and now as president, Buchanan was really the first. By the end of the 10-week New Hampshire primary campaign, Pat Buchanan, the well-established cultural conservative, had become a full-fledged economic nationalist. The transformation and attacks on the establishment toppled what was then the political orthodoxy in the Republican Party, the combination of free trade and global alliances. Buchanan found a really comfortable space in New Hampshire where you had the die-hard, the free-or-die, anti-tax conservatives in the Republican Party 
who were open to that kind of challenge and open to the culture wars. The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family. After 10 weeks of vicious campaigning, New Hampshire voters were set to go to the polls on February 18, 1992, to choose between incumbent President George Bush and conservative TV pundit Pat Buchanan. This was a not insignificant challenge, particularly because it was so ideological on Buchanan's part. In the closing hours of the campaign, the power of the presidency was on full display as Bush brought in celebrity conservatives to drive turnout. So let me introduce you a supporter and a great friend of mine, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Send a message to Pat Buchanan. Hasta la vista, baby. Like the leader of the insurgency he was, Buchanan vowed victory in spite of the overwhelming odds. Come Tuesday, the Buchanan brigades are going to run head on into the hollow army of King George and cut through it like butter. As voters went to the ballot box, Pre-election polls showed Bush shedding support and Buchanan surging. The exit polls showed him winning. So when the networks went on TV with the, with the exit polls that night, they assumed Bush had lost the primary. Though Bush won, Buchanan shocked the political world by winning 37 percent of the vote. It felt like a victory party on the night that the votes came in. And in defeat, he claimed victory. Today, from dawn to dusk, the Buchanan Brigades met King George's army all all along the conquered Manchester-Nashville line, and I'm here to report they are retreating back into Massachusetts. We won in the sense that we got an incredible uh, third of the vote against the sitting president of the United States, and we were nobodies. In the competition for the nomination, Bush won the bruising election. He had turned away a serious challenger and was on his way to coasting towards the Republican nomination. The contest, however, exposed a little-known division in the Republican Party. New Hampshire was, as the New York Times noted, a roar of anger for grassroots Republicans. In the end, we did not win New Hampshire, but we scared the bejesus out of the Republican establishment. Exit polls carried a warning for Republicans. Buchanan had won half of all the white men who had voted. Suddenly, the Bush people began to understand that there was a problem in his base that they had not seen before. Buchanan said he would take his campaign to the next primaries, Georgia, Maryland, and Florida. In reality, it was over for Buchanan. New Hampshire was his last and only stand, having staked his entire election strategy on notching a surprise victory in the Granite State. We had no campaigns in any other states. 
We had to put every dime in there. If we didn't win then, it didn't have a campaign. We made our point. We nicked Bush pretty hard. It stung him. And Pat advanced his cause with that. Democrats also took note of the bruising primary. Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, who also secured a surprising second-place victory in New Hampshire that night, joked that in November, we will win a great victory against Pat Buchanan. Buchanan didn't beat Bush in New Hampshire. He didn't beat him anywhere. He walked away with nearly 3 million votes, but lost all 51 primary contests. Still, he refused to drop out of the race, despite desperate pleas from the White House and other leading conservative figures. Buchanan had promised his supporters he would take it all the way to the Republican convention. This was a complete strategy because we knew if we weren't a candidate, we had no chance of speaking. By staying in the race, he maintained leverage over his party and pretty much ensured himself a visible role at the convention. I said, look, he's going to endorse, but it has to be a speech. We weren't going to endorse early. We were going to endorse at the convention. The Bush team was reluctant to allow Buchanan to speak let alone grant him a primetime spot, as Buchanan demanded. After lots of haggling, the White House relented and offered Buchanan a primetime spot on the first night of the convention, right before former president and conservative standard bearer Ronald Reagan. They hoped Reagan would overshadow Buchanan. (laughs) Of course, I tried to look like, well, this this is a possibility. And I was like out of my mind, excited at the possibility. And so I drove about 80 miles an hour to Pat's house and said, they've made this offer. What do you think? We were laughing and having the best time of our life because everything we had done had worked out. We now had a prime time speech. With an eye towards a presidential run in 1996, both Buchanan's were ecstatic that the Bush campaign would place Pat alongside Reagan. As we thought, you know, this is Mr. Conservative. Ronald Reagan was the leader of the movement for how many years and was president as a conservative, and now Pat. In return for the primetime speech, the Bush campaign wanted Buchanan to do three things. Endorse President George Bush, pay homage to Ronald Reagan, and attack Bill Clinton. We wrote the speech, and I sent a copy over to them, and it went to, I believe, Craig Fuller to get approved. And... They had a few minor changes, and it was approved at the White House. Just after 8 p.m., Buchanan stepped to the podium and unleashed his searing rhetoric as well, only he could. Like many of you, last month I watched that giant masquerade ball up at Madison Square Garden (laughs) where 20,000 liberals and radicals came dressed up as moderates and centrists in the greatest single exhibition of cross-dressing in American political history. At its heart, the cultural war speech, as it became known, painted a bleak picture of a divided America. On one side, young, hardworking, patriotic Americans, just trying to make ends meet, face radical feminists, atheists, gays, and environmentalists who wanted to take America down a path towards socialism and certain ruin. Friends, this election is about more than who gets what. It is about who we are. It is about what we believe and what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war 
as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself, for this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side, and George Bush is on our side. Buchanan closed his fiery speech, citing the violent uprising in Los Angeles during the spring of 1992 that left 63 people dead. Anyone who lived through the Rodney King riots remembers the imagery of the confrontations. White police versus unruly blacks. Whether truthful or not, this was the impression the media presented day in and day out. So when Buchanan pleaded, no, demanded really, that his supporters stand up to the ruthless mobs like those heroic soldiers and police officers did, the message was hard to miss. And as those boys took back the streets of Los Angeles block by block, my friends, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. He gave quite a typical Buchanan, you know, kind of rabid speech. And it was not the kind of speech, if you're the nominee, you want to hear Buchanan concluded his speech to thunderous applause. The GOP's rank and file loved it. The cheers lasted so long, the evening's headliner, former President Ronald Reagan's own speech, was delayed by a few minutes. We got rave reviews that night. The Bushes were happy. Everybody was happy. He played the role of the good Republican that night. He endorsed George Bush. His criticism of Bill Clinton was uh, hilarious. Sitting just a few feet from Barbara Bush, Babe Buchanan remembers the first lady praising it as well. Mrs. Bush's words are, we could never have asked for more. Thank you so much. On television, pundits praised Buchanan. Several of the big, big names in the media, now I can't remember which ones, went right on television and said, I've never seen a speech like this. This is the most remarkable. There's people you could hear a pin drop in this place. We delivered it brilliantly. It was a terrific evening. And the Bushes were thrilled, and the next day, they started to pound it. They, establishment Republicans, reacted differently and feared Buchanan's coarse rhetoric would drive away moderate voters. Andrea Mitchell. And I remember being on the floor at the convention in Houston and standing next to some really mainline traditional Republicans like Nancy Kassebaum, who was then a senator, and others who were just horrified at the culture war speech that Buchanan gave, even in endorsing Bush as the nominee, he rocked that convention with a challenge to its very roots. The president's own son, George W. Bush, was overheard describing the speech as disastrous. While the columnist Molly Ivins wrote that the speech probably sounded better in its original German. Buchanan called his sister the next day as she was preparing for a round of interviews and told her HUD Secretary Jack Kemp, who was eyeing a presidential run himself in four years, was trashing Buchanan. He said he's going after us. He's saying that it's, you know, whatever. So be prepared. And that night when I was on TV and I was doing some analysis, one of the questions to me was, how can you support what your brother did last night? I said, what? Did you hear that last night? Did you hear everybody raving about it? What is this? And they said, the Bush people have said that you're continuing to try to harm them and 
They never approved it. They never saw it. By Wednesday, the Bush team was running away from Buchanan as fast as they could. Well, you know, they put us us under the bus is what they did. And it was foolish of them. Once again, if they had shown some backbone and they had said, that's nonsense, we work with him. His message is a terrific one. And, you know, it was suddenly uh, I was in another world, an alternate universe. Governor Clinton is now president-elect Bill Clinton. George Bush would go on to lose the 1992 election. It was a tough and nasty affair, with the economy at the forefront of the campaign. Both Bill Clinton and the third-party candidate Ross Perot used many of the same criticisms as Buchanan did in their campaigns against Bush. They painted him as out of touch and ineffective. However, they both stopped way short of the coarse and divisive economic nationalism and us-versus-them rhetoric that Buchanan peddled. It wasn't until Donald Trump in 2015 that another long shot would copy Buchanan's full-throated, in-your-face, America-first, anti-immigration stance. I didn't think he was a serious candidate. And he started taking about the wall, and I just said, holy smokes, this thing's going to resonate. And when he hit trade, I called Pat up. Are you advising him? <laughs> and he says, I don't know. Somebody over I haven't talked to him, but somebody over there must be reading my books or something. Andrea Mitchell. I see a lot of the roots in what Pat Buchanan was waging in the cultural wars in what Donald Trump has tapped into by appealing to the miners and the steel workers and disaffected uh, union members. It's not too much to say that he probably is a descendant of Pat Buchanan, a political descendant. He's a precursor to Donald Trump. If you look at rhetoric like that, we're certainly hearing echoes of it in the Trump presidency. If Pat Buchanan created the modern blueprint for a populist to woo angry, disillusioned, white working class voters by attacking from the right, then Trump took that blueprint and built the Taj Mahal out of anger, disaffection, and resentment. Together, we will make America great again. Trump is now a product of the anger after all of the factories hollowed out. They're looking for someone to blame in addition to Washington. Well, guess what? A lot of them blame immigrants, who I think they wrongly believe came and took their jobs. Carl Cameron. What we now hear coming from our current president, from the podium at rallies with 15,000 in, was the kind of stuff that Pat Buchanan was cautious to allude to, but never actually say out loud. Having listened to countless hours of Buchanan's 1992 campaign, it's amazing how much they sound alike. But in retrospect, how much darker and divisive Trump's rhetoric is. Buchanan was almost cheery in comparison. It's also a sign of just how much America has changed. That is the key. America has changed a lot in the past 25 years. It is always changing. For some, those changes are dark and scary. For others, they are bright and encouraging. Today's grievances, whether real or imagined, are very much yesterday's grievances. But I think that if there were not a Pat Buchanan, I don't know if the country, I think the country would have been always ready for that message. But I don't know if we would have somebody who was so certain of themselves running on it as Donald Trump did. As long as Americans are concerned about their economic future, economic nationalism 
will always have a place in American politics. It isn't going anywhere. But the distrust of immigrants and multiculturalism may be far harder to maintain as a winning strategy. When Buchanan ran, white voters were more than 90% of the electorate. In 2020, it will be more like 65%. As America becomes more diverse, the intensity and volume of those who support Buchanan and Trump-like rhetoric may grow, just as their numbers shrink. A short postscript. I think it's now very clear that Pat Buchanan in many ways was the ideological influence for Donald Trump, which is ironic. The two men were actually opponents in 2000. Oh, you didn't know that Trump had tried for the presidency once before? And not just flirted with the idea, as he's done many times. He actually ran in 2000. They were both vying for the Reform Party nomination, the leftover remains of Ross Perot's presidential runs. Buchanan would ultimately defeat Trump and win the nomination. But here is what Trump wrote in the Los Angeles Times when he warned of Buchanan's extremism. Buchanan's ideas, Trump said, are so wrong that a person who sets out to correct them doesn't know where to start. You've been listening to Long Shots. Thank you to our guests, Charles Bierbauer, Richard Stradling, Stephen Stark, Babe Buchanan, Carl Cameron, Jay Townsend, and Andrea Mitchell. Catch her every day as she hosts Andrea Mitchell Reports at noon Eastern on MSNBC. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was J.C. Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Blue Note for the Long Shots theme song, aptly called Linger. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosine. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Karamis, who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Karamis is a leader in creative, strategy, and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, the team at Karamis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you're in luck. There's more stories just as bananas as this one. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Good Pods app. And recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell, and this is my life.